Now we're continuing in our series from the New Testament readings, which is the book of Romans. We've been consistently going through that as that's been in the New Testament lectionary for a good portion of the summer and even before that. There's just a few more, uh, just two more weeks after this, and then Romans will be wrapped up. But to understand what Mike was just reading in that New Testament in Romans, to understand what it means to be a church that has health, a church that is alive, we have to understand Paul's heart for it to begin with. His heart for the church, his heart for this group of people in whatever town or village that they're in, and, and for them to be the community of God. Now, you're not going to find his church on display in this text as you will in 1 Thessalonians. So just let me turn your attention there for a moment. 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing his letter to them. Uh, because he's quite concerned about how they're doing. He actually doesn't know how they're doing. He hasn't had any news from them. He's wanted to go to them for some time. Thessalonians was a church, Thessalonica was a church that was birthed in all kinds of trouble. It was, the birth was fine, but it was the aftermath that it was a little bit tricky. Acts 17, you might recall that Paul goes to Thessalonica and he's preaching in the synagogue, he's talking, and Jewish people are responding, and then Greek people are responding, and then women of some means are responding. There is a, a revival going on, and so people are coming, attendance is up, giving is up, because we've got people with a lot of money that are starting to join. It's looking great, until it's not, until some of the Jews from other parts who are against Paul, who are against this gospel, that the gospel is, is the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. They are adamantly against this, and so they come, and they really do violence, literally do violence. They organize a mob, they pay a mob, they grab them from the marketplace and say, it's time to do some violence. It's time to tear down this young community. And they go after a guy named Jason, not our Jason, different spelling. <laughs> they go after Jason and his house, and they bring him before the magistrate. And they say, these guys are disturbing the peace of this place. And it's so violent that Paul has to escape. He doesn't get to hang around. He's not debating. He's not responding. He's not Xing back, I guess. He's not Twittering. He's Xing. He's not doing any of that. He has to leave in fear of his life. And so he leaves his, one of his children, his spiritual children. And he doesn't know how they're doing. And so he, he, he says... In his letter, I wanted to come to you, but I, I couldn't get there. Satan thwarted us. I, I, wanted, I wanted to be with you. So since I couldn't go there, I sent Timothy. And Timothy has just now come from you and has brought good news about your faith and your love. In other words, Timothy's come and he said, you're alive. You're not only alive, but you're thriving not destroyed. It looked bad and it looked bleak. But it wasn't. God sustained you. While I couldn't do that other than through my prayers, the Lord has taken care of you. And so he is rejoicing. And we all can connect with Paul in some way. There's times in our lives where we are waiting for some kind of news, waiting to hear about the job application that we turned in waiting to hear about the college that we've applied to, waiting to hear about the results for the test that we've taken, 
waiting to hear from a friend or a relation that we've reached out to and we haven't talked to in years, waiting with hope and with anticipation. This is Paul's mind, and when he hears that the Thessalonians are doing well, he is rejoicing. And the reason he says they're doing well, he calls out two things. He calls out their love, and he calls out their faith. And these are very good summary words for what this passage in Romans that we've just read actually unpacks. So we're going to look at just three key themes that's own condensation here of all the stuff that Paul is talking about, right? Love must be sincere, cling to what is good, be devoted to what is never be lacking in zeal. Bless those who... There's a whole list of things that are going on. And if this was a revival that was three days, and we might be able to get through them all, but it's not. It's a modest hour and 15-minute service. So we're going to just talk about three key areas here. The first thing, what does it mean to look like a healthy church? What does it mean if you're your own examination of like am I doing in your kingdom? What does it look like? Here's a couple health indicators. First one is he starts with love. Love be sincere. The list begins with love. This is so Paul, isn't it? Like of all the things you can do, the ministry stuff that you called to do, the miracles that you're working, the doctrine that you know, the way that you give yourselves and your lives, that's all great. That's all necessary. But without the foundation of love, and he, as he wrote to Corinthians, it's nothing. So love is the basis of what we are called to do. It is the bedrock foundation of any fellowship that is worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. But he says the key thing here, love must be what? Practice. Love must be sincere. It must be real. The actual word in the Greek is it must be without hypocrisy. Our world is very good at practicing a sort of hypocritical love, a love that says, I, I'm expressing the fact, you know, some image of the fact that I love you or care for you or my organization, etc. But if I'm really honest, oftentimes I'm doing that, that I might personally benefit or my organization might benefit. To be one who presents as one who loves is actually good business. It's also very familiar to us. And there's a temptation, let's face it. We're all tempted to sort of use that expression of love, kindness, consideration, things that go with that as a way to really um, build up our own reputation rather than help the other person. So when, when Paul is saying love must be genuine, when he says it must be without hypocrisy, what is that? Fundamentally, as God defines it, as Jesus modeled it, it means that you have the other person more important than yourself. Their needs are above what your concerns are or your desires are. This is the essence of love. This is John 3, 16. This is what Jesus did, what he modeled. He could say that because he gave himself, heard when we were at the retreat in May, Father Ryan was talking about self-donation. As you donate who you are, what you have, your time, your capability, your ability to be alongside, your prayer, your crying with those, you're rejoicing with those who rejoice. You're giving of yourself in a way that does not want to receive, but only wants to. That is the love of Christ. The heart of genuine love. You desire and, but it's not just those things. It is also to desire the other person's goodness. Good things for them. And in scripture, 
good things is uh, not only the provision that we need and the community that we need, but it's also the ways to be challenged and exhorted into Christ-likeness. Think of the people that are kind of in your inner circle of friends. I'm, I'm trusting, guessing, thinking that part of what qualifies them for that is that they're able to speak truth to you in a way that you can hear it, and you can hear it because you know that they care for you. They have credibility because of the way they walk, and they have credibility because of the concern that they have. And we need those people. We need people in our life that love us enough to desire our good, to tell us things that perhaps we'd rather not hear. And some of us may have jumped the gun on that in other people's lives, so we can all learn from that from time to time. But love that is worthy of is defined by Christ. It has the other person as the object of our love. It is sincere in that all we're really trying to do in those moments is to reflect the love of Christ to those we care about. That is love that is sincere. That's one of the first health indicators of a healthy relationship with Christ, the first health indicator of a church that stands up against opposition, like the church in Thessalonica, like the church that Paul is writing to in Rome. These are back then. Rome was no picnic. Thessalonica had all kinds of issues and challenges with the culture. So do we. It's this time. So we can learn a lot about the, the foundational need for love. The second thing that Paul says, the second area I want to focus on, is keeping our spiritual fervor. Let love be genuine, but now let's keep our spiritual fervor. Verse 11 says, never be lacking, Paul's telling the Romans, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I don't know, what, what comes to your mind when you hear that? Do you, do you sort of hear Paul as some kind of like, I don't know, maybe master exercise person? He's like, you can do it, come on, bust it out, you can do another step. Go, go. We might be tempted to think that because of who Paul was. I mean, he was super educated, amazingly capable, incredibly persevering, uh, not easily dissuaded, would get you know, hit in the head with a rock and get him back up and want to go back into his town. More than once, his disciples had to say, no, you can't go there because it's too dangerous. So when Paul was telling us to have spiritual fervor, you're like, you know, honestly, um, I'm not in the Marine Corps. You know, this isn't for me. This is for somebody else. But what Paul is meaning is not that we need to be like Paul, because spiritual fervor is a, is a focus, is a desire to see God's kingdom advance that's motivated and energized by his Holy Spirit. It's a good example, but Paul is not the Holy Spirit. It is his spirit that is working in us. John Stott commenting on this says that the idea here is not so much that we are a glowing lamp as it is that we are a boiling, bubbling pot. It's kind of interesting. I don't know, if you have an Instapot, maybe you could kind of, you know, sort of connect with that. But it, it's just this ongoing enervation, uh, spiritually speaking, through the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to keep our focus on the Lord, to not let this life descend into just something that I want so that I can compare myself with friends, have my family think I'm doing well. Those are fine at one level, but those are not what life is about. What life is about is what the life in Christ is about is zeal for his kingdom, zeal in our love for him, 
spiritual fervor that wants to say, Lord, what you've done for me, I want to share and present to other people. Serving the Lord. I think one of the hallmarks of spiritual fervor that I'm probably most connected to, what often occurs to me, is just to expect the Holy Spirit to lead us to people in need, to opportunities to be God's hands and feet of love, perhaps share the gospel to those that are curious or those that are wondering, to do those things, to allow the Spirit to lead. I'm not sure how much Jesus actually planned his days. You know, I think he knew that it was time to go to the next town. He would tell his disciples, we can't just stay here and heal people. We need to keep moving. But I don't think he had a big sort of, you know, Monday morning kind of spreadsheet that had him here and there. He was led by the Spirit. When we are led by the Spirit, you know what the Spirit will do? He'll also lead us into times of rest. I think there's a tendency to see, to read a verse like this and hear it and think, oh man, I'm such a failure. I, I should have been doing far more. Instead, I watched a game or something like that. There are times that we need rest. There's in the Spirit. He's probably more eager that we would take those times than we are, if we're really honest. So maybe part of that leading, maybe part of that fervor, fervor is not a sprint, fervor is a marathon. So maybe part of that is to allow him to lead us into times of rest and leading, him in, leading us into rhythm. It's one of the things that is a huge value of our Anglican tradition. So never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. And when you feel yourself flagging or lacking, it's just like, Lord, your spirit is in me. Help me to understand what you need me to do next in this or to do nothing. So love must be sincere. Let's not flag with zeal, but to be dependent on the Lord. And the final sort of theme, and this actually takes a fair amount of the verses in the passage, is do not return evil for evil. Come evil with good. That's a condensation of a lot of the different things that are mentioned here. Whole idea of dealing with evil in this world for us as individual Christians and for us as a church is something that we do to face up to, to take seriously, to uh, say, Lord, I know in the midst of challenging and our, our evil, you have a way for me to be honoring to you, to be helpful to those near me, to give them some aspect of your life. Evil is a pretty comprehensive term, by the way. It means essentially... Uh, it's not only things that are bad or worthless, depraved or corrupt. At, at its essence, it is a separation from God or an opposition to him. It is why you hear evil used a lot. Jesus says, you fathers, being evil, you still know how to give good gifts to your children. Like, well, that's a little harsh, you know. I mean, <laughs> But he's talking about there's a distance between us and God. And to the extent that gap is... Uh, there, there is a portion of being separated, potentially in opposition to his will. Paul says, don't return evil for evil. Evil is present all around us. Evil is pres- present in a systematic way. Evil is present in a personal way. Evil is present in a historical way. And all of these are influences that impact us even now, even in this moment. Some of you will go to work tomorrow and there's aspects of sort of a godlessness or aspects of people just not connecting with God in any particular way. And so if, we're not, if they're not doing that, then how do they manifest a life that's going to be characterized by without him? So these are our friends, though, at work. These are our colleagues. These are our neighbors. 
family members. Families are great places where evil gets committed, extended families. What do we do? Retaliate. Think ill of them. We don't wish them. I was reading recently about Thomas Jefferson during the Constitutional Convention. He was writing to James Madison, and he was bellyaching about Patrick Henry because all their great plans, all Jefferson's great plans, were threatened by Henry's oratorical skills. He could change a crowd at, you know, at the drop of a hat, and they were concerned that he would mess things up. And so Jefferson writes to Madison somewhat of a lament. He says, what we have to do is devoutly pray for Henry's death. Sometimes we're thinking, it would be great if that person got transferred. It'd be great if they moved. It'd be great if something happened to them. This is not of our divine nature. This is of our human fleshly nature. And so in times like that, we know that we don't return evil for evil. Now, not returning evil for evil means that we necessarily suffer. It's mostly about the church, but the gospel reading recognizes the importance. And when you are feeling wronged, it is important to speak out. And if you're not listened to, it's important to bring someone who can support you. And if they can't support you, then it's important to bring more people to that direction. So to not return evil for evil does not mean that we just kind of go into doormat mode and let people step on us. It means sometimes the Lord is leading us to have some really courageous conversations, to pray that, that reconciliation would be worked out. But in the end, as we do that, as we leave room for God's wrath, this is, this is Paul's remedy by the way. Don't repay evil, anyone for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That means to say, I've said my piece. I've given, this is how I see the situation. This is my hope for reconciliation. I will tell you from personal experience that to get to a place of, you know, from wanting evil to be returned for the evil that you've received to a place where you just say, Lord, I, I graciously turn this whole situation over to you. That takes time. If you pray that prayer that the Lord would work in you, that you would not return evil for evil, in my experience, it's sort of like a, I don't know, long time release aspirin. It just sort of doesn't work immediately, necessarily, but a little bit over time. And then finally, you, you find yourself, I'm just not as worked up about that situation. It's not that it's not no less real. It's just that my God is a lot bigger than he used to be when I first started down this particular hard road. So don't return evil for evil. Leave room for God's vengeance, says Paul. See, God doesn't allow anything to come into our life that he hasn't already figured out how he's going to deal with. He doesn't let anything come into our life, no matter what the level of injustice or hurt, that somehow isn't going to have an accounting at some point in the future. Maybe not in this life, but at some point it will have an accounting. Because to do evil is to do things that are apart from God, and God will make sure that all is known and that those of we do evil too. And the Lord will be <laughs> calling us to account, which is why we pray, Lord, you know, help me a sinner. Have mercy on me. And we should probably pray the same, not probably, we need to pray the same to those that are coming at us. When we do that, we are saying, Lord, I know that the thing that, that, is, that is working in their life uh, that's causing them to be 
hurting me in some way or hurting people I care about is the same sin that has been operating in my life. What is it? Jesus knew that so well that on the cross he could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We're reminded of this. If you do the daily office, you know that the Lord's Prayer is a feature of the morning prayer and evening prayer. Lead us, forgive us our sins as what? As we forgive those who sin against us. And, and the, Jesus' explanation of he says, basically, don't expect to be forgiven if you're not going to forgive other people. We're in the same boat. We're of the same origin. To be on the receiving side of evil doesn't mean that we're particularly saintly. It just means that we're on the receiving side. But we've been on the giving side plenty of times. We're just as in need of God's mercy as, as the person that's hurting us. So the church that makes a difference, lives that make a difference in other people's particular are ones that bless where they are cursed. Where one, and in so doing and doing things in that nature, you're overcoming evil with good. Let me conclude with this way forward, if you will. First conclusion says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. That whatever these health indicators are for this church, whatever these health indicators are for our lives, we still have to live today, the rest of today, and if God gives tomorrow, we live it tomorrow. How do we do that? We, we, I love verse 12 because it says, be joyful in hope, knowing that the hope of heaven awaits us as we stay faithful to the Lord. That's a joy. That means, Lord, I know that this is, this is going to be brief. It's kind of like, okay, I can do this. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Joyful in hope that be done that summer is coming. Patient in affliction. In the meantime, when affliction is all around us in so many forms, we do. We're patient. But how are we going to be patient? Well, we're going to be patient because the Holy Spirit, who has been helping us with spiritual is also the one who provides us with patience. And finally, throughout all these things, we are faithful in prayer. Prayer is our language to the Lord. Prayer is the, the, the giving of our heart to him that says, Lord, you know exactly what's going on. You know it better than I know. You know the ways that I'd like to see it resolved, but you have your resolution. That verse 12 really is a centering. That to be a healthy person in Christ, to be a healthy church in Christ, we must always remain centered on the one who brought us to him to begin with. To have his, the hope of heaven before us, to have him alongside is allowing us to be patient in affliction, and to give him our prayers faithfully and fervently. Amen.